Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman continues his sermon series titled, Asking for a Friend. Today, part three, can we trust the Bible's portrayal of Jesus? Here's Dr. Tom Goodman. We are in the middle of a series called Asking for a Friend. And uh, we're looking at the questions and we're looking at the objections that some of our non-believing friends or family members sometimes ask us about the faith. So we're looking at topics like suffering and miracles and the question of hell. Really important topic, the question of justice and does Christianity have anything to say about the big justice questions of our day and age? Questions about sexuality. Uh, uh, why does God care who I sleep with will be one of the questions we try to answer in a couple of weeks. But one of the big questions that is uh, increasingly being asked more and more by our non-believing family and friends is, can we really trust the Bible's portrayal of Jesus? It seems that there's a growing number of people who question the reliability of the Bible to get us to the actual words and actions of Jesus. There are an increasing number of people who teach and believe that the Bible was written many uh, decades after, or maybe even many centuries after the life of Jesus. So how can it get us back to the actual life and teachings of Jesus? But the Bible tells us itself that it was written so that we might enter into fellowship with Jesus, along with those who had fellowship with Jesus uh, in the New Testament times. Take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're told the reason here why we have a Bible. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. So John really hammers home his personal experience with the ministry of Jesus. He says, we heard him, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands. And then he says, we pass this on to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now you can underline that in your Bible or circle it in your sermon notes so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's the reason why we have a Bible. So which is it? Are the gospels uh, eyewitness testimony of Jesus's words and actions or are the Gospels filled with myths and legends that developed decades after and centuries after the eyewitnesses had long passed off the scene? I want to give you five reasons why you can trust the Bible's portrayal of Jesus. I want to give you five reasons why you can trust that the Bible gets you right to the words and actions of this remarkable man named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it may really help if you have uh, your sermon outline with you. So if you're on campus or if you're at home, if you can go online with a mobile device and find our sermon notes, it's just at hillcrest.church bulletin. And there you'll find the five points that I want to talk about today. Here's the first thing to write down. You can trust that the people who lived in Jesus's day wrote the New Testament. You can trust that the people who lived in Jesus's day were the ones who wrote the New Testament. Like I said, some claim that a long time passed between the uh, days of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament, long enough for myths and legends to develop uh, from people who never knew Jesus, but they had this great admiration for Jesus, so they made up these stories and made up these claims as a way of talking about how remarkable he really was. But 
uh, the contemporaries of Jesus, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, actually were the ones that wrote down the things that we see in our New Testament accounts. For example, the Apostle Paul began writing within 10 or 15 years after the life of Jesus. And most of the New Testament is made up of his letters. Uh, and sometimes you'll find within his letters snippets of hymns and lines from creeds that were widely sung or widely uh, uh, chanted or recited by the early church. So what this indicates is that those things were written even earlier than Paul's letters, which would get us just within a few years of the earthly life of Jesus. So here's an example. Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. Even the most liberal scholars out there recognize that the Apostle Paul himself wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians within 20 years of Jesus' earthly life. Now, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see those words, receive, pass on. These are technical terms indicating the practices of a mentor to a student. A mentor, a master teacher would, would pass on something and the student would receive that which had been passed on to him. Much like a, a relay runner would pass on a baton to the next person coming up behind him. Now, Paul says here that he received certain things, and now he's passing them on to the Corinthians. He had had a personal experience with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, but he had never personally walked with Jesus uh, uh, as Jesus was alive on this earth in his earthly ministry. In fact, Paul was, was opposed to all the claims of Jesus until he met the risen Christ himself. But he received the teaching of, uh, of, of Jesus' words and Jesus' actions from people who are eyewitnesses. He received that and he passed on. Now, if 1 Corinthians was written within 20 years of Jesus' earthly life and Paul says, now I'm passing on to you what I received, when did he receive it himself? He received it even closer to Jesus' earthly life than that, just a few years after Jesus was on this earth. Um, now, another one is Paul's Philippian letter. Now, in Paul's Philippian letter, uh, he quoted from a hymn that was sung by the early church. Uh, in some of our Bible translations, it's even set up in sort of a lyrical form so you can understand that it is actually a hymn that's being quoted here. A lot of us who are Bible teachers today will uh, reference a popular movie or will quote a popular song lyric or will quote from a hymn that, that people uh, like to sing in a church and we'll use that to sort of reinforce the point we're trying to make. That only makes sense, of course, if there's a sufficiently wide number of people that have been singing that song or, or, or they're familiar with that movie. So for the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians to quote this hymn to reinforce the point he's trying to make lets us know that it was already widely understood and widely sung by the churches at that particular time. Now I've set that up enough. Now let's look at the lyrics of this, of this hymn that he quotes. His, his point is to try to say that you need to be as unselfish as Jesus was. And then he begins to sing or quote this song that the early Christians sang. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. For uh, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now notice right at the beginning of that, being in very nature God. According to Philippians chapter 2, the earliest Christians not only believed that, they were busy singing that in their worship services. They were singing the fact that Jesus was in very nature God and became a human being taking the form of a servant and died on the cross for our sins and rose again three days later and reigns in heaven now. Now these are things that weren't invented centuries after Jesus was on the scene. Paul was quoting from a hymn that wide numbers of Christians were already familiar with and singing just a few years after Jesus was walking on this earth. So what we see in the Bible is eyewitness testimony. These are just some examples from Paul's letters, but of course the Gospels are where we get the stories of Jesus, the stories about his words and actions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were written by apostles or under the guidance of apostles themselves. Uh, and they were eyewitnesses of everything that the gospel reports. I really like a guy named Richard Balkum, who wrote a book that really emphasized this. He's a New Testament scholar uh, of world renown, and he wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's a really remarkable book that gives evidence after ev evidence from the pages of the Bible itself, indicating that these things show evidence that eyewitnesses themselves were the ones that were conveying these stories and communicating these stories. Now, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses is a book that runs about 500 pages. So if you don't have enough time for that book, I recommend it. But if you don't have enough time for that book, I want to recommend another book by Richard Balkum. It's called Jesus, A Very Short Introduction. Don't you like that word short? A very short introduction. This is interesting. Oxford University Press came, uh, began to publish a series of these very short introduction books. And they would take scholars who were experts in their various fields, and they were called upon to write within 100 pages an introduction to their field, such as physics or critical race theory or the story of Augustine and so on. There are over 275 of these little, very short introduction books. And when Oxford University wanted somebody to write an introduction to the life of Jesus, they asked Richard Balkum to write that. And uh, I have this in my hand. It's an it's a entertaining little book. And in, a, in, a, in not 500 pages, but under 100 pages, he talks about the fact that we can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as eyewitness testimony to the words and actions of Jesus. If you want information about how to get a book like this, you'll find on your connection card today, there's a little checkbox that says, you know, please send me all the resources that Tom mentioned in a sermon today, and uh, I'll send you how you can get this very short introduction to Jesus that might be useful for yourself and might be useful for some friends who might be asking some skeptical questions about the reliability of the Gospels. Um, now, not only were these stories written by eyewitnesses, or superintended by eyewitnesses. But these stories about what happened to Jesus and what Jesus said and what Jesus did, all of these things were communicated very publicly. Uh, it wasn't like the lore of some secret society that was passed on from one initiate to another. It was publicly communicated. So, for example, just, after, just a few days after Jesus' execution, Simon Peter was publicly announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead 
And he said to the people in Acts chapter 2 that they could recall the very things that Simon Peter was saying because they themselves were eyewitnesses to these things on the closing days of Jesus' earthly ministry in Jerusalem. In addition, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul says that more than 500 people saw the risen Christ. And then he added, most of whom are still living. Now, why is it so important to point out that what we read in our Bibles was written by eyewitnesses. It was because the earliest Christians were inviting people to investigate these claims for themselves by going and asking the very people who were there when it was happening. We can trust that the stories we read about Jesus, his words and actions, were written by people who actually heard his words and saw his actions. Here's a second thing you can trust. Write this down. You can trust that the Bible was faithfully copied. We don't have the original Gospel of Matthew. We don't have the original letter to the Philippians. Why? Because it was written in pen and ink on parchment, and any natural resource eventually crumbles into dust. Doesn't that make sense? So why do we feel confident that when we open our Bibles today, it takes us back to those original documents? Well, there are several reasons why. The sheer number of copies that we have the sheer number of copies that we have close to the original and the sheer number of copies close to the original that are written in various translation from various geographic locations. All those things point out a great deal of confidence the scholars have that what you have in your Bible takes you back to the original Gospel of Matthew and the original letter of the Philippians and so on. Scholars have cataloged more than 5,000 uh, copies either whole or in part of the New Testament documents. One of the earliest copies we have is dated about AD 100. It's a portion of the Gospel of John, which would have been a copy that was copied just a few years after the original was written down. Now, in addition, translations of the Gospels in other languages occurred very early and all around the Mediterranean coast. We've been able to find these copies uh, in various translations. And as you compare all these various translations that were written very, very early, it gets us to the uh, original in a very secure way. No other ancient document has so many copies that are dated so close to the original as we have the New Testament documents. It's still true, though, that some doubt that copies could be transferred accurately in a day with poor lighting and poor eyesight. Wouldn't you expect certain uh, variants between the copies to show up? Well, you can expect that. And, of course, there are some what the scholars call variants between the copies. But let's understand what variants are. They're referring to the misspellings of certain words. So one word that's accurately spelled in one copy may not be accurately spelled in another. Or a word that turns up out of order in a sentence. And of course, that's not unusual when you think about uh, all the ways that the Bible could be translated into other languages. Or in a few cases, a story that appears in some copies doesn't appear in other copies that we have. But uh, we need to understand that that's what the uh, scholars are referring to when they refer to variants between the copies. There is no variant in any of the copies that challenges a biblical doctrine. In other words, you don't have 
uh, one copy of the Bible saying that Jesus is the Son of God and another copy of the Bible saying Jesus wasn't the Son of God. You don't have one copy of the Bible saying Jesus rose from the dead and another copy of the Bible that says, no, that didn't happen. So these variants don't touch upon the doctrines of our faith and the truths of our faith. We can trust the copies of the original writings. Here's a third thing you can trust. Write this down. You can trust that archaeology verifies the stories of the Bible. You know, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't begin with the line, long, long ago in a land far, far away. Uh, they root the story to rulers that existed and to towns that existed and to social customs that existed at a specific point in time. And over the years, archaeological work has increased our confidence, if we needed it, that the Bible uh, is actually rooted in those very things. Those, those rulers that the Bible said existed at a certain time really did exist, and those towns that existed in a certain place really did exist, and those social customs and forms really were practiced at that time. Archaeology verifies that. I wish I had enough time today to just go over it point after point after point of how the our archaeological findings reinforce these things, but let's just suffice it to say at this point, if archaeology shows us the truth about the Bible and things we can verify, doesn't that increase your curiosity to look at the truths of the Bible that archaeology can't verify? Archaeology can't verify that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God, but if we can trust the Bible to to tell us the truth about things we can verify, doesn't it increase the likelihood that the Bible might be on point when it comes to the things that we can't verify by archaeology? Here's a fourth thing I want you to write down. You can trust the consistency of the Bible. You can trust the consistency of the Bible. Some claim that the stories of Jesus and the four Gospels contain contradictions. And in one sense, I suppose that's true as long as you understand what we mean by a contradiction. It is true that an event that appears early in one gospel appears later in another gospel. So, for example, you're reading through the gospel of John, and the cleansing of the temple takes place early in Jesus' ministry, whereas in the other gospels it takes, later, it takes place later in Jesus' ministry. Or a statement that one gospel reports was said in one setting is given uh, in other gospels in another setting. Or in one gospel, for example, a man asks Jesus to come and heal his servant, and another gospel, that man sends somebody to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. This is no secret. This isn't something that, you know, your uh, skeptical uh, religion professor at your favorite university told you, and he just suddenly disclosed something to you that nobody knew. We've known this. Bible readers have known this for 2,000 years. But are these really contradictions in the way modern people tend to use this word? Let me put it this way. Would any of these so-called contradictions between the eyewitnesses get their eyewitness testimony thrown out from a court of law? You remember a few weeks ago, we showed you my interview with homicide detective J. Warner Wallace. He became a Christian in his early 30s. He was an atheist before that, but then he got curious, and he began to take the principles of his cold case investigations and apply them to the eyewitness testimony that was claimed in the New Testament. And he found, as so many other people have found, that um, the eyewitness testimony in the Bible is, is very consistent with the way acceptable eyewitness testimony is uh, presented in a court of law today. Uh, even today, eyewitnesses in a court of law 
might be talking about the same event, but they may differ as to what clothing the culprit was wearing or what sequence of events, what order of events those things, uh, the events showed up in. And in fact, uh, many people would say that if you are uh, uh, in a court of law and you're in the jury box and you're considering uh, people's testimony, if every single detail lined up in exactly the same way, you would start assuming that those eyewitnesses had colluded, that they had gotten together ahead of time and come to an agreement about how they were going to present the facts. No, in this day and age, people recognize there is a variation in the details when eyewitnesses are recalling an event that increases the likelihood that they are actual eyewitnesses. The fact that there is variation in the detail between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John indicates that these are actually eyewitnesses who are communicating this in their own way. Here's a fifth thing that you can trust. I want you to write this down. You can trust the selection of the Bible's writings. You can trust the selection of the Bible's writings. It's fashionable in some circles today to highlight that there are, were various numerous competing gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And you've heard the old line, history is written by the winners. And these people say that there were certain gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that sort of supported the increasing power of those in authority in the church. And so they favored those. And all these other competing gospel accounts of Jesus' life uh, would have contradicted what those church leaders said, so they suppressed those. It's very fashionable for people to share that understanding of these competing gospel accounts today. It is true that in the first centuries of the church, there were other so-called gospels. The gospel of Philip, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Thomas. I've read a couple of these gospels in my training years back when I was in my 20s. These Gospels have existed. Christians have always known these Gospels have existed. But here's the thing. We don't have any one of these Gospels that is as old as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written within 150 to 200 years after the earthly life of Jesus, which means that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are far, far older than any one of these Gospels, which means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John get us back to the eyewitnesses and back to the actual life and teaching of Jesus far better than any of these other competing Gospel accounts. Not only that, if you've ever read some of these competing Gospel accounts, they're pretty kooky. I mean, I know that sounds like a judgmental word, but I've read a couple of them, and some people who kind of relish the idea that there were competing gospel accounts and think that perhaps these competing gospel accounts will give you a more favorable uh, Jesus that won't judge your sexual uh, preferences or, or, uh, or, or, or judge gender differences and that kind of thing. They ought to read some of these gospel accounts before they put too much stock into them. Francis Spufford um, is an English novelist and he became a, a believer in his adulthood and he wrote uh, a book about his experience of becoming a believer. It's called Unapologetic, which is interesting. Apologetics is generally a field of teaching which is a defense of Christian truth. And he writes this book to say, I'm not apologizing for anything. I'm unapologetic about my faith in Jesus. And in this uh, particular book, he writes about these so-called competing gospel accounts, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Judas, and so on. And he compares the Jesus that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the Jesus that we see in these competing gospel accounts. 
He says the Jesus of the Orthodox story, that is the story told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, treats people with deep attention, even when angry. Their Jesus, the Jesus of these so-called competing accounts, zaps people with his divine superpowers if they irritate him. Orthodox Jesus says that everyone needs the love of God and God loves everyone. Their Jesus has an inner circle you can be admitted to if you collect enough cracker packets. Orthodox Jesus likes wine and parties and grilled fish for breakfast. Their Jesus thinks that human flesh and its appetites are icky. Orthodox Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am always with you. The Jesus of these documents says, advance blue adept to the 17th jade portal of amazingness and give the secret signal with your thumbs. Read much of the rival gospels and you start to think that the church fathers who decided what went into the New Testament had one of the easiest editorial jobs on record. It wasn't a question of suppression or exclusion so much as of seeing what did and didn't belong inside the bounds of a basically coherent story. You notice what he said right there at the end. He said that the church fathers, in other words, the earliest church leaders, had the easiest editorial job on record when they made a decision about what sort of belonged and what is your New Testament right now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul's letters, and so on. And what he's referring to there is that as early as the early second century, maybe a hundred years after Jesus' earthly life, we begin to see letters from different church leaders, Clement of Rome, for example, and in those letters, you start seeing showing up this list of, of, of documents, this list of books that uh, these church leaders said that the earliest Christians depended on to get them to the actual words and teachings of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, it was some centuries later where church leaders sort of formally adopted or formally put in a formal list that which was reliable and accurate information about Jesus and what we should be, believe about Jesus. And that's called the canon, C-A-N-O-N, the canon of the New Testament. The word canon doesn't mean something that a soldier blasts. It's a C-A-N-O-N, which is a stick that a carpenter would use to measure the accuracy of something he was cutting. And so the canon, your New Testament, is a measuring stick of that which is accurate, that which is reliable, that which you can count on to give you accurate information about who Jesus is. You can trust the, the uh, selection uh, of these writings. So five reasons that you can trust the Bible to give you accurate information about Jesus. It's important to emphasize this information today because people increasingly are going to ask you, but yes, you tell me that this is what the Bible says that Jesus said, this is what the Bible says Jesus believed about himself, but wasn't the Bible written many, many years after Jesus' death, long after the eyewitnesses had gone, long enough time for legends and myths to have developed? Isn't this true? People are going to be asking you this question. But once again, that's why today's text is so important. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. The New Testament documents were written so that you and I get a chance to fellowship with Jesus the way those earliest people who saw him and heard him and touched him were able to have fellowship with Jesus as well. Now, if you want to have fellowship in this way, if you want to enter into this type of fellowship, then what do you need to do? Three things. Write these down and we're done. First of all, read it. You need to read the Bible. And now, how do you begin reading the Bible? Now, you can begin with the first page of Genesis and go to the last page of Revelation. You can do that. 
But the, the, the Bible is not a novel. The Bible is a library of books. And if you went into a public library today, you wouldn't start with that which is beginning with the letter A and then going to the letter Z. You could do it in that order if you wanted to. But what do you typically do when you go into a library? You go to a book that interests you. You go to a book that uh, deals with a subject that troubles you, and you pull that one off the shelf. And so you ought to feel free to do that with the Bible as well. Pull out a book that interests you. Maybe the Psalms of the Old Testament. Maybe the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Maybe one of Paul's letters. Or maybe you ought to start with one of the four, let's call them biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and start reading it. There's a second thing you need to do. Think about it. Think about it. You know, as is, every, as, as is true about everything else in the Christian life, this ability to understand the Bible is this combination of your effort and God's sovereignty. So God brings it to light. God helps you understand it, but you need to go through the process of thinking about it. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul wrote, Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Isn't that a great combination of what you're responsible for and what God is authorized to do? He's going to give you insight into understanding the Bible. How? As you go through the process of reflecting on it and thinking about it. And so we need to make sure and do that. And there's a third thing you need to do. Live it. Live it. As important as it is to read the Bible and to think about it, put it into practice. And I would encourage you, even if you're not convinced at this time that the Bible is actually the Word of God, if you'll just take portions of the Bible that you read and experiment with them, put them into practice, I think you'll find the Bible to be a reliable guide for how to live and so therefore a reliable guide to get you into the actual words and actions of Jesus. Remember though, and this is true, the aim of reading it, the aim of thinking about it, and the aim of putting it into practice is not just to gain knowledge. It's not just a win at a Bible trivia game. The aim of getting into our reliable Bible and reading about Jesus is so that we can have fellowship with Jesus. That's the very first thing we run across when we look at today's text. First John tells us that all these things were written so that as we read and think about them, we enter into fellowship with the Jesus that we find in those pages. And that is what we need to be doing in our lives. He came to die for our sins. He rose again in victory. He promises to live within those who put their trust in him. And as we read the Bible, it should lead us to that experience with the one whose life and teachings are found in the pages of that book. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Tom Goodman continues his series, Asking for a Friend, with part four, How Could Any Reasonable Person Believe in the Bible's Miracle Stories? I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.